1: Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at angie.com. That's A N G I. Or download the app today. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting.
2: And happy Labor Day weekend. Charles Osgood is off today. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. We Americans will be spending this holiday weekend in any number of ways and in any number of places. Some of us may even be spending the weekend, quite literally, up in the air. Lee Cowan has been watching some airborne adventurers and will show us why they're so high on ballooning.
3: In a world full of extreme sports, hot air ballooning is a quiet, almost silent departure. But that's not to say it's not exciting.
1: There's an adventure aspect to
4: ballooning. The only thing certain about today is where we're taking off. Where we land, who knows?
3: In short, if you get in that basket, you better not make any plans. And frankly,
2: why would you want to? Up, up and away ahead on Sunday morning. He's a show business legend with a long-standing connection to this particular holiday weekend. He's Jerry Lewis, of course, and this morning he talks with Tracy Smith. Jerry Lewis
5: has more than 5 dozen movies and an Oscar to his credit, but even now at 90, it's hard for him to sit still. So, uh, I have to ask you this question. You working? Uh, <laughs> yes, all the time.
2: Go now, Tiffany! <laughs> The Labor Day legend, Jerry Lewis, later this Sunday morning. Space, the final frontier, is where the Star Trek saga has been unfolding for the past half century. And as of now, at least, there's no end in sight, as Faith Saley can attest.
6: Star Trek, the pop culture phenomenon, is celebrating its 50th birthday this week. Quite an achievement for a show that was almost forgotten.
7: We were on for three years and then we were cancelled. And that was the end
6: of it.
2: You thought.
3: So I thought.
6: The not-so-final frontier. Later on Sunday morning.
2: All Washed Up is a story from our Bill Geist. All about one of the world's oddest but cleanest pastimes.
8: Folks, this speed queen is top of the line. But I don't know if I'd call it collectible.
9: Which way do the machines? But these guys do. Oh, my gosh. What's best for permanent press, John? Oh, wow. Washing machines are their passion. These have personality. There's that burping action. For me, I've always been fascinated with these machines. i waited my whole life
8: for this. Meet these magnificent men and their washing machines later on Sunday morning.
2: Moraka salutes the tongue twisting science of vexillology. Anthony Mason has the sad story of Joey and Rory. Connor Knighton is on the trail to Mesa Verde National Park and more. Next, Up, Up, and Away.
0: All decks go to full alert.
2: And later, Space. The final frontier.
10: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
2: Up in the air is where you'll find fans of one particularly buoyant sport refining their skills just ahead of their big annual gathering next month. But it's going to take a lot to top their last get-together, as Lee Cowan shows us in our cover story. They arrive
3: long before dawn, rubbing the sleep out of their eyes, some on foot, others with trailers in tow. It's a dark pilgrimage, but it doesn't stay dark for long. Off in the distance, what looked like giant multicolored turnips start to awaken, fed by the blue-green belch of a propane dragon. Three, two, one. By sunup, gravity is given a pass, and the spectacle everybody came here to see Thank you. finally lifts off the ground and floats away on the wind. Let's go. Every October, for the last four decades, the Albuquerque International Balloon Fiesta Say
9: hi. Hi. Hello. Hello.
3: turns the skies over New Mexico into a kaleidoscope, a feast for the eyes, the heart, and for some, their soul. You fly in an airplane
11: and you're looking at a little bitty hole. You fly in a helicopter and you got, you got all this noise and you can't hear. You fly in a balloon and you got a 360 degree view of everything that you see. It's probably the closest thing to being a bird that a human being can do.
3: The sheer scale of it is overwhelming. More than 500 hot air balloons were all in the air at the same time. Crowds cheer as the balloons lift off one by one in a colorful wave, some just seconds apart. It's a delicate dance, all choreographed by so-called zebras. They're dressed that way so the balloon pilots can see them in what looks like organized chaos.
11: I'm like a kid in a candy store when I see the balloons all up in the air. I love it.
3: As spectator sports go, the Balloon Fiesta is pretty laid back. In fact, the best way to watch it is on your back to prevent a kink in your neck.
0: I'm just so happy to be here.
3: The Balloon Fiesta has been on Susan Brooks' bucket list for years. She came to see this heavenly sight all the way from North Carolina.
2: I say, God, thank you because he has blessed us with a beautiful world. And I said, it's just another way that we can see it. And I just, I love it. I just
11: absolutely
12: love it.
3: Ballooning was man's first form of flight. It happened in Paris in 1783. The Montgolfier brothers believed that it was actually smoke that caused things to rise. Although they were wrong, they did get quite a ride, says historian Troy Bradley.
1: Didn't get a lot of lift, but they, uh, they got enough to get it up uh, to probably have a, a spectacular view. And uh, coming back and telling stories of this aerial view had to have been pretty remarkable. But at the time, going that high was a pretty death-defying feat, It right? was, exactly. And especially in the, uh, in the balloon that they were flying. That's a scary contraption. I'm not sure that I would have wanted to do that.
3: <laughs> and that's saying something. Last year, he and Russian pilot Leonid Tuktyayev broke two world records. They flew their helium balloon farther and stayed aloft longer than anyone. A total of more than six days. But ballooning is not without its dangers.
4: I looked off over there and the next thing I knew you saw a big fireball go up.
3: In July, a sightseeing balloon carrying 16 people crashed in Texas, killing all on board. But accidents like that are rare, even among those who use their balloons to compete.
7: All jammed up together. Get to the tip of that target.
3: The point of this competition is to maneuver the balloon over a target and hit the bullseye with a beanbag bag tossed from the basket. There are few better at it than the Hartsville family.
7: It's not
11: hard, you just have to be lucky, see. I wear a belt that's got Indian head nickels around it. I got a silver dollar in my pocket. You just want to be luckier than the other guys.
3: It's a family affair for them. Joe? Okay, will have fun. And his two sons all fly. The rest of the family help out on the ground. Next generation pilot. They're all about exposing newcomers to the sport, and it is a pretty easy sell.
5: Well, Lee, it's enough pressure.
4: Looks like you're not getting out of flying. <laughs>
3: Judy Nakamura has been piloting hot air balloons for almost a decade.
4: <laughs> okay, let's let's hit it.
2: You guys ready on top?
3: Although before she took us up, she had a confession to make.
2: And here's the funny thing, I'm afraid of heights. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> well, are I just really? don't look down. Yeah, but I wasn't gonna tell you that till it was all over.
3: <laughs> She's a fan of the truth. She has to be. So how are you gonna fill the hole? She's a state Supreme Court justice, a job that obviously requires a lot of control, which ballooning doesn't really offer.
1: If you are a control freak, ballooning is not for you. <laughs> if you need to
4: know, Lee, where you're going to land today, you better not get in this basket.
3: That all sounded pretty good to me. And so, we were off. Ha <laughs> ha! The ascent is so smooth, you barely realize you've left the ground. There's a gentleness about it and a silence. You get it? Yeah, I totally get it.
2: I still don't know how to quite
9: describe it.
5: Look
2: at that. It's mean, just like a bunch of Christmas ornaments hanging in the air.
3: That's exactly what it is. Judy's fear of heights seemed to melt away, for the most part.
4: You deal with those fears, and you overcome those fears. Yeah. Okay, that made my knees quiver. <laughs>
3: Does it ever get old?
4: No.
2: It's different every time.
3: But it can't last forever.
2: I'm currently at 6,300. I'm going to start to descent.
3: Landings can be the tricky part.
2: I want to go there.
3: We're not. <laughs> and I'm okay. Any landing that you walk away from is a great landing. Sometimes you glide right into the hands of a waiting crew. Other times, the ground comes up to meet you pretty hard. And sometimes you come down and you don't always stay
8: down.
3: Such is the nature of hot air ballooning. It's not always an exact science, it's more of an experience.
11: Welcome to ballooning.
3: That was awesome. That was great. Thank you so much. In these days when flying is more drudgery than anything, here, it's all about whimsy. A place where pigs fly and hound dogs hover, and where reality seems silently suspended.
2: A Sunday drive in an Edsel is just ahead. page from our Sunday morning almanac. September 4th, 1957, 59 years ago today, the day Americans got their first look at a brand new car.
11: This is the Edsel, unlike any other car you've ever seen.
2: Named for Henry Ford's son, who had died years before at the age of 49. Classic. The Edsel was the Ford Company's bid to expand market share.
9: And with Edsel's exclusive Teletouch drive. You can shift,
2: turn the wheel. In its TV commercials, Ford showcased the Edsel's futuristic features. The Edsel rollout was a huge event.
10: How does
8: it feel to own an Edsel?
2: It's like falling in love. Featuring a mountain of print ads and TV commercials, this
8: is the Edsel.
2: And an all-star television spectacular here on CBS. This is the Edsel Alas, all to no avail. Critics mocked the Edsels' distinctive vertical grill as a horse collar, or worse. And owners complained of problems with all those space-age features. Sales fell drastically short of projections. And in the fall of 1959, Ford shut down the Edsel assembly line. Although collectors and enthusiasts still keep a few Edsels on the road, for most Americans, the Edsel remains synonymous with failure. Failure on something of a cosmic scale. Oh,
3: your snappy. When you
6: own
3: your pulse beats happy.
1: Are the gears already starting to turn where you're seeing these as pieces of fabric? Of course.
2: On the trail with Mesa Verde's resident artist. Next.
10: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
2: Can a national park showcase human accomplishment along with natural beauty? Connor Knighton is here to tell us it can. Hematology, this is Susan.
1: For 50 weeks out of the year, Susan Madden works here in an office as an administrative assistant in Salt Lake City. But for two weeks this year, she was able to work here in the hills of southwest Colorado as an artist in residence at Mesa Verde National Park. Since I was 20, I've wanted to be an artist full-time and it doesn't work financially, so I have a day job and then I do what my heart loves in my spare time. Whenever Susan has a spare moment and a spare piece of fabric, she's quilting. But you're not likely to find her work draped across a bed. It's meant to be hung on a wall. I first started learning traditional quilting. Then I started to wonder if I could use fabric the way I used paint. Susan is a landscape quilter, and the national parks have frequently provided inspiration. This is Canyonlands National Park. This is a scene from Arches. Some fabrics change their color. With each new quilt, there's a quest to find just the right piece of cloth to represent a blue sky or a pink sunset. When you're looking at these, are the gears already starting to turn where you're seeing these as pieces of fabric?
11: Of course, I see everything as a piece
1: of fabric. And so you're looking at that and you're like, I've got just the perfect- I've got the perfect fabric for that. I'm inclined to believe her. This is Susan's palette. And for a two week trip to Colorado, she packed a lot of paint. There's more. Where's more? Under the couch. There's another one of these? Uh, There's smaller. (laughs) No, Susan! Stop! Oh my gosh! As an artist in residence, Susan was given free housing. It's a rare chance to live and work in a park where people lived and worked hundreds of years ago. So how old is this area here? All the cliff dwellings were built in the 13th century. You have these different construction phases. These spectacular cliff dwellings, created by the ancient Pueblo people, prompted Teddy Roosevelt to designate Mesa Verde as the first national park to preserve the works of man. Today, rangers like David Franks are still marveling at these structures.
3: It's beautiful here, it's humbling, it's amazing. There's a lot of mystery.
1: The ancestral Puebloans left this area in the early 1300s, leaving behind these communities for archeologists to puzzle over. They even left behind some art.
9: You look up in here, at the three stories up and you will, you will see the painting up in
1: there. Susan has already started working on quilts inspired by the dwellings. She's part of a long tradition of artists who have been moved by these public lands.
3: Back in the 1800s, it was painters that came out west here, drew these incredible landscapes. That caught the interest of people back
1: on the eastern part of our country, hey! you might want to go see this, might want to save these, you know.
5: So while I was there, I did a sketch. Today,
1: several parks have artist-in-residence programs. Whether it's painting or photography or fabric, there's something about these places that makes people want to create. That's the common thread. At present speed, our ETA is three hours, four minutes, sir.
2: Ahead, Star Trek. Still boldly going after 50 years. I and if there's anything that you have on your bucket list, or I, I want to be a Viking. Jerry Lewis, still getting laughs words, at 90. Said, does it mean anything?
0: I'll Fly Away, oh glory. I'll fly away.
2: I'll fly away by Joey and Rory who rose from unknowns to winners of the ACM Award for Top New Vocal Duo a few years back. What's happened since is a story we're calling With Love. Here's Anthony Mason.
7: When did you, when did you find this place?
12: Well, I was driving from Nashville down this road in 1999, and I saw a homemade-for-sale sign. (laughs) Rory
7: Feek spent 14 years on this farm in Pottsville, Tennessee, with his wife, Joey. When their country music career took off, they converted their barn into a concert hall. They'd
12: say, ladies and gentlemen, from clear across the parking lot, (laughs) Joey and Rory. And we would walk on stage, and it was special. It was so good.
0: the garden and watching country on the radio that's important to me
7: but early this year just as their album hymns that are important to us debuted atop the country chart Joey lost a two-year battle with cancer she was 40 you had time to prepare for this in a way at the same time nothing prepares you for this
12: I don't know if I expected it to be as heavy as it is because we had so much time to prepare for it, but right. I think it's that heavy when she's that wonderful.
0: Softly and tenderly, Jesus.
7: For the past few months on the farm, Rory has been working on a documentary to be released this week.
12: This whole experience of making the film has been incredible because I get to see Joey every day
7: to Joey with love, is the story of their relationship. Our
12: first date was on Valentine's Day in 2002. Joey worked at a horse
7: vet clinic, and I was a songwriter. Rory was was a a single single father with two teenage teenage daughters daughters when they met. She kind of picked you out, didn't she? My wife stalked me. That's
12: what what she says. (laughs) She actually saw me play at a songwriter's night in Nashville at the Bluebird Cafe. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's proof that there's a God, because there's no way I could have landed that girl without his help.
0: did you buy
4: her whiskey on In 2008,
7: a friend persuaded them to audition for the CMT show, Can You Duet? The whole time I just said, no, this is not going to happen. This is not going
12: to happen. They're not going to let a 42-year-old man in overalls stand next to this beautiful girl and have a career.
11: When she said you see that guy in the baseball cap I'd like to spend some time with a boy like that
7: They came in third and soon had a recording contract and their own TV show on the RFD network.
4: Mm-hmm a
7: <laughs> Then in 2014, their daughter, Indiana, was born with Down syndrome. 13 weeks later, at Joey's checkup, doctors discovered cancer in her cervix. She had extraordinary optimism through all of it. She just believed
12: God has a bigger plan, that everything's going to be okay, even if it's not okay.
7: Joey's surgery first appeared to have removed the cancer, but it came back. She fought to see her daughter's second birthday. How did did you feel when she finally said, I just can't fight this battle anymore?
12: I think she knew I was ready. Mm -hmm. I wasn't. You weren't as ready as you thought you were. No, I wasn't as ready. None of us are, still not. It's been, I don't know how long, five months and I'm still not quite ready. That's the biggest thing I struggle with is I still walk around thinking, she's really not here. She's really not coming back.
0: Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound.
7: At the rear of Rory Feek's sixty acres, under a cluster of sassafras trees is a cemetery where the family that built the farm in the 1800s is buried. Joey Martin Feek was laid to rest here in March.
8: I am found, was blind,
12: but now
0: I see.
12: I just can't for some reason bring myself to go and order a stone yet. You can't? I don't know why. I just can't. I don't know if it's that she's so simple, a wooden cross is part of what she would like, but it probably has something to do with permanence. Mm -hmm. You've got a bench here. I've got a bench. Do you come out every day? Almost every day. I've got a place for my coffee and hers, and we still have coffee together.
7: How is Indiana doing?
12: Indy's doing really well. She'll just sign mama and say mama every once in a while, but usually it's in the car because she wants to hear mama sing.
8: And what if I hadn't failed your kids? What if my heart didn't fall?
7: Are you still writing music? No.
12: I don't want to be on a stage without her. That's what I'm thinking about right now. It wasn't something that I loved that much to be on stage performing she loved to be on stage performing and I loved to stand next to her I just had the best seat in the house to watch the world discover my wife
0: I'd rather have something to forgive than nothing to remember
2: Coming up
12: this is Jerry Rockefeller wow.
2: History is on the menu
10: welcome to play it a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business sports tech entertainment and more play it at play.it.
2: Last Monday, the people of New Orleans marked the 11th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. Much happier memories can be found at a culinary landmark that survived and thrived with a timeless family recipe. Jamie Wax has saved us a table.
13: To be known for indulgence, history, and ceremony in a town like New Orleans, you have to be the genuine article. Antoine's is that and more.
11: I'm only here 48 years myself. Uh,
13: 48 years? Yes, sir. The 14-room restaurant dates back to before the Civil War, when in 1840, a young French immigrant named Antoine Alciator first opened its doors. While most restaurants aim to constantly reinvent, Antoine's goal is to make its French Creole food exactly the way it's always been made. Tom Fitzmaurice has been writing about New Orleans cuisine for more than 40 years. Let's see if it tastes the same. And he's been eating at Antoine's even longer. This dish never changes. I, I really like it for that. Their finest example of consistency is their most famous creation.
12: This is your to Rockefeller. Wow. Antoine's was created the to Rockefeller.
13: The decadent oyster recipe was so rich, they decided to name it after the famously wealthy John D. Rockefeller. The dish is served in restaurants around the world, but Antoine's head chef Michael Regua says none of them do it right.
0: And this is a family secret. You we won't don't give away the recipe. We don't give the recipe away. There's only three cooks here that know how to do it.
13: They estimate they've served around 5 million orders to everyone from FDR
8: I had oysters, Rockefeller, and I think I better
13: to Andy Rooney.
8: Right. No sense in
13: changing it. It's a tradition. And we put rocks out. And tradition defines Antoine's. Welcome all assiotours and descendants thereof. Not long ago, they gathered every living member of the family to celebrate and commemorate their 175th anniversary.
5: Hope I'll get to see each one of you sometime before the day is over.
13: Yvonne Alciatore-Blunt is Antoine's great-granddaughter. That's her, front and center at the 100th anniversary, when she was three. Her father ran the restaurant. Now her son Rick is in charge.
5: When people say this is a family-run restaurant, it's not just our family. It's th- this is my family. The waiters, the cooks, I love them all.
13: That sense of family even extends to the guests. How are you doing, Miss Catherine? Watch Michael Howard and his family greet their waiter as they first walk through the door. Oh, How are you, Good to see you. Good to see you.
5: Come on, right. let's go. In most other restaurants, in most other places, waiters have sections, say, of a dining room. And if you sit in that section, you get Charles or Harry or Joe or whatever. Here, once you have a waiter, that's your waiter from then
13: on. Pick it up. Let me Charles up. Carter is a third-generation career waiter at Antoine's, and in full disclosure, he's also my family's waiter.
12: Old-fashioned? Uh, Jack Daniels old-fashioned yes, sir. be great.
13: Charles' father, Val, was the Howard's waiter for years, and now Charles is their waiter.
12: Every birthday, every major academic event we celebrate here, the one person who's always here is our our waiter. He's the one constant member of our family. I don't think any of us could actually discern um, that Charles is not actually blood to our family.
13: That's why when Charles's dad, Val, was diagnosed with cancer, the Howards, who have doctors in the family, called in every favor they had. It ended up buying him a few more years. Did you have an opportunity to feel like he was proud of you and what you were doing here?
4: I, uh, he, he told me, uh, on occasions that he was proud,
8: but I do remember, remember when, I, uh, when I served the Greek Orthodox Pope, it was right
12: before he, he passed away, and I called him uh, and I told him that evening,
13: and uh, he, he did, he said he was, he was proud. Charles's own son is just learning how to walk.
3: You can't have to shoot polish.
13: But Charles hopes he might decide one day to work side by side with his old man too.
3: This isn't a job. This is a career, and we do spend our lives here. And We're able to take care of our children and our families. They do well for us. So.
13: Food critic Tom Fitzmorris. This restaurant is my favorite
3: restaurant. I would not tell you they have the best food in New Orleans. I wouldn't tell you they have the best service or the best wine list or the best, really, anything. But you put the whole package together,
13: it's hard not to love this place. A New Orleans landmark. Elegant, a little saucy, and aging gracefully.
2: Next, we run it up the flagpole. With its broad stripes and bright stars, our nation's flag demands respect. But ask an expert, which is to say a vexillologist... And it turns out that all flags are not created equal. Mo Rocca takes a closer look at flags.
4: Pop quiz. What does your city's flag look like? Admit it. You probably didn't even know your city has a flag. What I want is for people to love their flag. Roman Mars loves flags. He's host of 99% Invisible, a hit podcast all about design. But he says city flags may be the worst designed things you've never heard of. Hialeah, Florida? Really? Milwaukee's flag? Ouch, turn away. As for San Francisco, the city he makes home, well, its flag isn't much better.
14: The obvious things are take off the words. I would stylize the phoenix a little bit more.
4: Mars collects flags he likes. From Ohio's.
14: It's the only non rectangular flag in the Union.
4: To that of Zheleznogorsk, Russia.
14: This was a secret Russian town that uh, made weapons grade plutonium. And so they had this as their flag a Russian bear splitting an atom.
4: An expert on flags is called a. A vexillologist. <laughs> a vexillologist. Sorry, a, sorry. A, it's a mouthful that's vexillologist with an extra lull in the middle. So the study of flags is... Vexillology. The North American Vexillological Association's Guide to Flag Design, Good Flag, Bad Flag, delineates five key principles.
14: The first one is keep it simple, that a child should be able to draw it from memory. The second one is use meaningful symbolism. Third one is use two to three basic colors. The fourth one is no lettering, no writing of any kind. And the fifth one is be distinctive or, or be related in, in sort of a group of flags. For example, the Scandinavian countries all have an offset cross.
4: Remember, a good flag makes a clear statement when seen from hundreds of feet away, even at sea.
14: Pirate flag, skull and crossbones. The Jolly Roger. Totally yeah. works. It Doesn't it? It's a great piece of design because what it was meant to do was to scare people so much that they didn't fight.
4: You see this flag, you respond with this flag. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Last year, Mars gave a TED talk on city flag design. So here's a bunch of flags again. Uh, vexillologists
14: call these SOBs, seals on a bedsheet, And <laughs> if, if, if you can't tell what city they go to, yeah, that's, that's exactly the problem.
4: It inspired efforts in dozens of cities to redesign their flags, from South Bend, Indiana, to Bowling Green, Kentucky. But as hopeless as these flags may seem, they can't compare to Pocatello, Idaho's, which the North American Vexillological Association declared the worst city flag on the continent. It violates all the principles of good flag design. And this from the man responsible for its design, Greg Gunter. One of the things that the North American Vexillological Association took issue with was the use of both a copyright (laughs) and a trademark. Absolutely. To be fair, Gunter's marketing business designed the artwork as a logo for a city pride campaign back in 2000. This art was never intended as a flag. Exactly. somebody literally ran it up the flagpole. They
3: did literally run it up the flagpole. Ironically enough, it flew over, are you ready, the sewage
4: treatment plant, so. (laughs) That flag was taken down years ago, and a local committee is now working on a redesign. It's an issue the entire city is rallying behind, including Mrs. Delonis' fourth grade class.
13: So yesterday, we talked about the five characteristics of a good flag.
4: We asked these young Pocatellans for some of their ideas.
13: I drew a potato
10: for the state vegetable. I drew two of the blue lines. One represents the sky, and one represents the river. And this is Chief Pocatello,
8: and the black triangles represent the mountains
4: in Pocatello. Pocatello plans to reveal its new flag early next year. As for Roman Mars, he hopes one day to see a new flag flying over San Francisco. But for now, he says efforts for a vexillological victory are in vain.
14: The city is not all that interested
4: because, you know, they have a lot of problems to solve. You know, you got to hand it to Pocatello. San Francisco, take note. Pocatello may not have a Golden Gate Bridge, but they get stuff done. Absolutely.
9: Oh, yes. Bill's got coffee on his shirt. Oh,
10: no.
8: Yeah.
2: Just ahead. Bill Geist comes clean.
10: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment and more. Play it at play.it. This is a
2: 1940 Maytag washer. It's also an antique much admired by a small but determined group of collectors. And for them, as our Bill Geist discovered, this gem is anything but all washed up.
8: Do you consider wash days as nothing more than a chore? Maybe it's time you changed your attitude. Try to be more
9: positive, more enthusiastic. All right, everybody, we're gonna go down and do laundry now. More like these guys. Bring your dirties. Oh, okay. Yay. Load me up, there we go. (laughs) They love laundry. Which way to the machines? They can't wait to wash. Oh my gosh, what's best for permanent press, John? Oh, wow. You wanna do this one, Mark? You wanna try this? Get your laundry.
8: They're members of the Washing Machine Collectors Club.
0: So exciting, it's like Christmas morning.
8: Really?
9: So is this your treasure trove down here? Yes, this is my treasure trove. Come on in, Bill. This is a top loader. This is a 57 Speed Queen. This is a Duomatic. It's a washer, washer, dryer. washer dryer. It's a yep. Philco Bendix. Bendix. This is a 1958.
8: John Charles was a founder of the group back in 1984.
9: How many members at that point? We had about six, I think. Uh-huh. Now we're up about 3,000 members worldwide. 3,000.
8: 3,000 washing machine collectors. Oh, yeah. Uh, a staggering, some might say alarming figure.
9: We have a collector in Madagascar. We have our first Russian member. Uh, we've got people in Australia. We've got everywhere. Here we are, Paul. Man. You get to pick a machine oh, now. Oh my gosh. Members gather regularly. We should put some more dirty clothes in here.
8: For what are called wash-ins, like this one at John's house near Boston.
9: That's like shaving cream now. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody to <laughs> <need a> shave? <laughs> <laughs> it just is three days of crazy washing round the clock. Yeah. I mean, if four are in the morning, you gotta say, okay guys, it's time to quit. i waited my whole life for this.
8: 15 of the faithful brought their dirty laundry from as far away as Canada and Nebraska.
9: I love the sound this one makes.
8: To play with the 22 working machines in John's basement.
0: I thought I was the only person that was crazy for appliances like this. And come to find out, when I came across the club, I was like, oh, my God, there's more people like me, you know? And it was really nice.
9: This is the Calvinator. That's rinsing action for you. These have personalities. There's that burping action. For me, I've always been fascinated with these machines. Ooh, this is sleek and... This is my my pride and joy. This combo is a favorite. Wow, that's the pounder. That's the pounder, exactly. Mm -hmm. The
8: 1957 Blackstone B250 in charcoal with the distinctive and very excellent control towers
9: like it's going to take off. Uh, Oh, yeah. 1,100 RPM. That's the fastest one that was ever made for a top loader. Really? Yeah. The two
8: are believed to be the only pair in captivity.
9: There we Uh, go. Look at that. That's pretty, isn't it? John's other
8: treasure is the 1938 Bendix. It's the first time I've actually seen one of these run. This is like a lifetime moment. Which always draws a crowd. They like to watch. And watch... Come and look.
9: And watch. Everybody has their most favorite part of the cycle, and what's, everybody's different. What's yours? I like the drama of spin. <laughs> to me, that's dramatic. I like that. It's drama. It's washer drama, we call it. And green was a much better oh, yeah. color than the gold. Between loads, these avid <laughs> laundermen <laughs> chat. You're matador red,
8: but that was in the mid 60s. Debate. Two dozen machines in my collection.
9: I made 2025
8: and compare collections. And how many
9: machines do you have? Oh, near 200. <laughs> 16 washers, 14 dryers. Paul
8: from Canada collects but one color.
9: Turquoise is my color. That's yeah. my that's my handle on the club, turquoise dude.
8: What draws seemingly normal people wow. to collect big old appliances and do their laundry in other people's basements? We'll let Cal from Maryland answer that. I have a good friend who's a child psychologist and she's sort of been studying this sort of passively. Does she think it's a syndrome of some kind, something that can be treated? Uh, <laughs> 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 we all know it can't. <laughs> yeah,
9: really
8: Not to worry.
9: Paul? Oh. Yes. Bill's got coffee on his shirt. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, thank you put you that very much. in there.
8: There will always be loads and loads of dirty laundry in this world
2: still to come
11: I'm telling you stuff I haven't talked about in 50
2: years thank you at home with Jerry Lewis
5: It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Jane Pauley.
2: Classic performances in movies like 1963's The Nutty Professor helped make a legend out of Jerry Lewis. He's 90 now, looking back and looking forward with Tracy Smith. So, how are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm, uh,
11: I'm getting over not walking it's rough.
5: It's got to be hard because you are such a physical comedian.
11: It's frustrating as hell. But uh, like my daughter said, Dad, would you have liked not to make 90? I said, no, I'm very happy about
5: it. He's a bit less mobile now. But for Jerry Lewis, not walking doesn't mean not working. In his latest film, Max Rose, he's a retired jazz artist coming to terms with his wife's passing.
11: And I never told you, Ava, but you breathe nicer than anyone I've ever known in my life.
5: Why Max Rose?
11: I fell in love with the material. Vonnegut is on Charlie Rose tonight.
2: That man is a horse's ass.
5: In this role, his facial expressions say it all. Then again, they always have. The typewriter scene from 1963's Who's Minding the Store is a good example. Jerry Lewis made more than five dozen sight-gag heavy films by himself and as half of what was once the most popular comedy team on the planet. Here comes the band. Oh, what a sight to see. Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin first teamed up in 1946, post-war New
11: York. I fell in love with him the day we met. <laughs>
5: And within weeks, they were selling out shows with their own brand of sex appeal and slapstick.
1: Why are you waiting? (laughs) I
5: forgot what song we were
6: singing. (laughs) (laughs) For you
5: and Dean, it almost seemed like anarchy. Is that the right way to describe it?
11: Yeah, pretty good. That's as good an explanation as I've ever heard. I loved him so much. And I knew how much he loved me. Jesus Christ, I'm telling you stuff I haven't talked about in 50 years. Thank you. We were both six feet tall. I took his shoes one day and put lifts on them so that he would be a little taller than me.
5: Because you thought that was better for the bit if well, you looked Oh yeah. younger.
11: You can't do that unless you're feeling it.
5: But after a nonstop decade together, they weren't feeling it anymore. The two parted ways in 1956 and wouldn't even speak to each other for nearly 20 years. You said you loved each other. Did you still love each other when you split up?
11: Oh sure, oh yeah.
5: It just was time?
11: It it was time for us both.
5: My head keeps spinning. I go to sleep and keep grinning. Martin, of course, it's hit new heights on his own. Giving. My life is gonna be beautiful. You rude, discourteous, ego And Lewis sense. became a top of box me, right? office and draw. I understand
11: it. Only this morning, looking in the mirror before shaving, I enjoyed seeing what I saw so much I couldn't tear myself away. Have
5: some, baby? Yeah. Under his direction, slapstick comedy became performance art.
11: Young man, that vase is worth $7,000.
5: For this scene in 1964's The Patsy, he broke hundreds of vases, training himself to catch them just before they hit. Lewis, who learned his craft on the fly by watching people on movie sets, That is a simple way to remember. wound up teaching a film class to grad students at the University of Southern California.
11: Any questions?
5: Who was in your class?
11: I had Steven Spielberg. About 12 guys from a class of 60 made it in the the bigs, we called it.
5: The really bigs? The bigs, yeah. I'm going to work. All right, places, please. And in 1960, he made another lesser known contribution to filmmaking, video assist. That is instant video replay of a movie scene after a take. Today, it's something directors can't live without.
11: The video assist was invented by Jerry because nobody had any idea what they were getting until the operator blessed it or until the operator critiqued it. There should be a sign, you know, saying, Jerry Lewis invented this. I got my education from film people.
5: But today, in Jerry's Las Vegas home, the Oscar that sits atop his TV isn't for technical achievement or a specific film. It's the Academy's Humanitarian Award for his other career. One more. Go now, oh! For millions, it just wasn't Labor Day until Jerry hit his number on the Muscular Dystrophy Telethon, which he hosted from 1966 to 2010. We raised an incredible amount of money. I'll give you an exact
11: figure. $2,700,000,000 accounted for. I think you're so adorable.
5: The money led to research and longer lifespans for MD patients, but it didn't buy a cure. And at times, Lewis could only watch as the disease claimed another of his kids.
11: The days and hours I spent in hospital hallways waiting for the answer to this child. Is he gonna live or die? And I took it very personal. Each one. How could he die? Look at the work I've done. And what do we do with all that money? Why don't we use it to help him?
5: How do you answer that?
11: You don't, you don't. Oh God almighty i could I could write a book on children's reactions to meeting their clown. One child says to the coordinator, If i didn't get muscular dystrophy i'd have never met him. Oh my goodness and then these children look at you like you're some kind of god I'm not a God, I just love people, and I love people that are well. I don't like to see someone sick.
5: <sighs> the MDA telethon had its critics, but also had its moments. And one of the greatest happened 40 years ago today, September 4th, 1976, when Frank Sinatra brought out a mystery guest. We you
11: send my friend out, please? Okay, where, okay, where is he? We just send him out here? Come here.
5: Did you have any idea what he was up to?
11: Everybody knew but me.
5: All right,
10: all right, break it
5: up, break it up. Martin and Lewis never did get their old act back together, not even after this.
11: Uh, So you working?
5: But they stayed close until Dean Martin died on Christmas Day in 1995.
11: You can't write love off or put it on hold. It stays with you until death. And I don't know, it doesn't continue.
5: That's the thing. Do you still think about Dean now?
11: Oh, sure. There isn't a day I don't think about him. And the fact that he left and died, I can't believe how bad I was that he died on me. I knew he would do it.
5: (laughs) So, uh, I have to ask you this question. You working?
11: Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Christ, all the time. Do you know what a wrench is, sir? A wrench? That's where Jewish cowboys live, a wrench.
5: <laughs> the twice-married father of seven is still performing live, with no plans to quit. Is there a goal you have now?
11: I want to live a little, you want a little
5: to live longer. A little? Live a little longer? Yeah. What's a little longer?
11: Well, I'm 90. I figure maybe four or five would be nice.
5: In the twilight of an unforgettable life, all Jerry Lewis really wants is a little bit more.
10: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at
6: play.it. So what's a genetically enhanced girl supposed to do when she wakes up from a long sleep? Point to one of those little specks of light out there, pack a bag, and go make a life for herself?
2: Uh, Yep, that is our own Faith Saley, appearing in the 1990s TV series Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Star Trek's exploration of the final frontier has spanned five decades now, with more to come. As Faith explains.
0: Space. The final frontier.
6: It's a line that launched a pop culture powerhouse.
0: It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds.
6: A line that, would you believe, even 50 years later, still doesn't sound quite right to William Shatner, a.k.a. Captain James Tiberius Kirk.
7: When I heard it, I thought, I'm not doing it right. There's something I'm not doing. It's not right.
6: Oh, I think millions of people, millions and millions would beg to differ.
0: All decks go to full alert.
6: Star Trek, the original series, which lasted just three years from 1966 to 1969, boldly set off on a voyage that's still traveling at warp speed half a century later. Fifty years ago. When you... Did you say
11: 50 years ago?
6: That show led to spin off series and movies, including a 2009 big budget reboot that introduced Kirk and his gang to a new generation of fans. It's a good time to be a Trekkie. And those at last month's annual Star Trek convention in Las Vegas, no matter what the species, were feeling out of this world. It was a pilgrimage for us. Fifty years. Fifty years. There among the Kirks and the Spocks and whatever this is.
5: It calls itself a hoarder. A hoarder.
6: We found perhaps Star Trek's most important fan of all. 83-year-old B. Joe Tremble. So when you sat down in front of your TV mm-hmm. on September 8th, 1966, right? What did you see and how did you feel about it?
2: Well, we were thrilled to have grown-up science fiction, finally, not, you know, there's an ugly monster, let's kill it.
6: That night, Bee Joe and her husband, John, discovered a sci-fi show they could warm up to in the middle of the Cold War. What kind of message did Star Trek give to audiences who who were worried that the world might be blown up in the next 10 years?
2: Well, the message was uh, maybe, that, maybe it wouldn't be. Did you ever
11: hear of a doomsday machine? No, I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. It's never meant to be used.
0: So strong it could destroy both sides in a war. Something like the old H-bomb was supposed to be.
6: Creator Gene Roddenberry may have pitched his show to the NBC brass as a wagon train to the stars. And walk back to two. But it was his hopeful view of the future. Stories of a racially diverse crew settling problems peacefully that turned its viewers on. Still, by the end of the second season, word got out that the voyages of the Starship Enterprise were about to be canceled. My husband, we talked about it and he said, there ought to be something we could do about that. Using 20th century technology of pen, paper, and postage stamps, B. Joe boldly went where few fans had gone before and began a letter writing campaign to save Star Trek. And sent it to whom? Uh, hmm
2: not only to NBC, but to all the NBC affiliates, to all your local TV stations, and most importantly, all the sponsors. It worked.
6: Star Trek was renewed for one more season. It's a news broadcast using a system I think they once called video.
8: Television was the colloquial term.
6: Though officially canceled after that third season, Beejo's efforts meant that Star Trek now had enough episodes, 79 of them, to live on in reruns.
13: And that is how a whole generation of new Star Trek fans discovered the show.
6: Scott Mance is the film critic for Access Hollywood and, if his bar mitzvah photos are any indication, a lifelong Trekkie.
13: Keep in mind that when Star Trek premiered, you had television shows like Bewitched, like Gomer Pyle, and yet you flip the channel and you're watching Star Trek? This was so ahead of its time. For
6: Mance, it wasn't just the storytelling that was ahead of its time, it was the way Star Trek motivated viewers to become fans.
13: No entertainment property before Star Trek had done like a convention organizing fans, bringing people together to dress up like their characters.
6: And then there are those Star Trek fans who've become Star Trek oh. family.
10: Is this, is this really your last name? Oh,
6: honestly, I am Deborah Kirk. Okay, <laughs> and my husband Barry married me
2: graciously and took my last name. Oh, right, sir. bravo! That a wise sir. choice. Was a I would have done
14: the same thing.
2: <laughs> May I introduce my son,
6: Patrick James. Kirk ty Oh, I love it! <laughs> and if all this seems a little spacey to you, consider all the Star Trek science fiction that today is science fact.
4: There are many things that they had in Star Trek that we have today, either on the ground here on Earth or in space.
6: Special advisor to the Intrepid Museum in New York City, Mike Massimino grew up fishing. watching Star Trek. Uh, yeah. A few decades later, he explored the final frontier for himself.
4: Things like a, a communicator cell phone. Go the use of computers.
0: This unit is the ultimate achievement in computer evolution.
4: Uh, flat screen monitors, uh, iPads.
0: But
6: it wasn't just the technology that was ahead of its time.
4: If you look at the space program in the 60s when it came out, it was primarily white male test pilots who were there. Then it expanded over the years into civilian scientists and then men and women and people of color and even big Italian guys from New York, me. Ready main phases.
6: Which brings us back to the captain. For the Shakespearean-trained actor, Star Trek has always been, first and foremost, all about entertainment.
7: Fascinating. You have interesting villains. You have strange, wonderful life forms. You have uh, mental gymnastics, uh, plots.
6: You have love.
7: And you have love. Lots and lots of love. Oh, yes. Um, pardon me a moment while I think about all that love.
6: (laughs) (laughs) And for the fans, now there's more love than ever. A new spin-off launches on CBS All Access in January. The voyages of the Starship Enterprise are far from over.
2: I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning.
0: If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Pauley, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.